Welcome to episode two of The Action Field. This is actually the second time I'm recording this episode because in the first one, I was just reading way too much text, left it feeling kind of cold. So I'm actually going to try and tap my own soul force here and um, read a bit less and just basically jam a little bit more on the mic and uh, we'll see how we go. So today we're going to cover the Bhagavad Gita, which when translated, basically translates to uh, the Song of the Lord. Now, it's an ancient Indian text, and we're looking at the translation today by Eknath Iswaran. Now, just a brief history on Iswaran. He was a professor of English at the University of Nagpur in India, and he came across to the West, in specifically America, the West Coast, in 1959, and he was actually the first guy there to teach a university-accredited uh, meditation subject at, uh, I think it was University of Berkeley, I don't know what that is, University of California or something like that. Um, yeah, but he also set up the Blue Mountain Meditation Center soon after that. Now, like, this is really early. This is like 1959, 1960, but strangely enough, this was the same time that Maharishi Mahesh Yogi went across from India to the West, namely the United States, and started teaching transcendental meditation. So both these guys came across at the same time. But getting straight into the Gita, there's so much to cover, we're only just going to skim the very surface of it. But basically, in the foreword, Iswaran tells a little story. But rather than read that like I did the first time I recorded, it sounds kind of flat and boring. I'll just tell a similar story myself, right? So every nighttime, if I'm out in the backyard or on the balcony upstairs, standing at, out there at dusk, pretty much every time I'm out there, I'll see this little bat who will just sort of flick across, you know, a few meters away from me and then disappears. And it's been this like really mysterious thing for me because I didn't, couldn't even tell that it was a bat. And initially I was able to like look at the shape of its wings and go, man, that's a bat. It's amazing. Now, where that bat comes from and where it sort of goes back to is like a mystery. Now, whenever I see something like that, much like the story I told a few weeks ago on Instagram, if you follow about the powerful owl that I saw and that maybe, you know, it symbolized something. I think that little bat that appears at dusk when I'm just looking up at the beautiful shades and colors of the sky is perhaps suggestive of something else, something that's like outside of the ordinary experience of the senses, which is, you know, how we live our day-to-day -day lives by all this sort of sensory information. Now, getting back to the Gita, what Iswaran goes on to say is that this wider field of consciousness which perhaps the bat for me is suggestive of that there's something more than what I usually take in with my senses that this is representative of a wider field of consciousness which is actually our native land so Iswaran says we are not cabin dwellers born to a life cramped and confined we are meant to explore to seek to push the limits of of our potential as human beings. 
I love that line. I'll get back to it in a sec. So the world of the senses is just a base camp, right? So much like when I'm standing out on the balcony at dusk looking out, when I see the sky and see all the stuff I usually see, that's like base camp, right? But we are meant to be as much at home in consciousness as in the world of physical reality. So when this back sort of flits across my field of vision, it's suggestive of this wider field of consciousness. Now, just getting back to that line that we're meant to push the limits of our potential as human beings. I just love that so much because that essentially describes what we offer here at Best Mind is to help you realize your potential. Now, this is specifically or especially in the high performance coaching option. We're here to help you realize your potential, your greatest gifts. And I also would say that meditation can really help you do this as well. It will show you, like Eastburn says, that this wider field of consciousness is actually our native land.
there we have John Abercrombie with Timeless. It was actually just a little excerpt of that track, Timeless, which goes for 12 minutes. Um, like I did last week, I'll put a link up to that so you can hear the whole track if you like. It's really incredible. Listen, and it's funny that it's called Timeless because essentially that's what a lot of this or the Bhagavad Gita refers to is us being able to find this timeless and eternal core that's in us all and to tap that here whilst we're here on earth and to create the link between our temporal existence and that of this timeless existence that lives at our core. But anyway, let's get back to the Bhagavad Gita itself and something Iswaran says in the introduction. He says something like, after 30 years of his devoted study of the Bhagavad Gita, that he wouldn't hesitate to call it India's greatest gift to the world. And I read that and I thought, holy shit, man, that's saying a lot. I mean, think of all the amazing cricketers like Sachin Tendulkar, man. Or, hell, even rice and curry, right? Just a little funny side story with this. I actually prefer Sri Lankan curry myself. My mum's Sri Lankan. Um, and whenever I think about that, I think about how when my parents must have would have first met, my dad's like, you know, this Australian dude, this white boy, and he would have gone back to mum's family. And mum's got a massive family, right? Seven brothers and three sisters. And he would have gone there and experienced curry for the first time. It would have blown his goddamn head off, man. The funny thing is that he's gone on to master the art of cooking rice and curry himself. And he just cooks this seriously turbo shit, man. That's just absolutely delicious. Like, my younger brother has actually been trying for like at least 10 years to try and cook that turmeric fried potato that my dad does like the same way. Hasn't quite nailed it yet. I mean, I would claim he has, but he's quite harsh on himself. He doesn't, but man, it's fucking delicious. Anyway, I digress. Let's just get back to Bhagavad Gita. And I guess I should explain that the Bhagavad Gita is actually a small part of this larger epic called the Mahabharata. Now, some historians say that the Mahabharata might be based on actual events that occurred around 1000 BC. But there's actually a scripture that goes back even earlier than that. It's a Hindu scripture, and it's called the Rig Veda. And the funny thing with the Rig Veda is that the music you hear at the start of the action field podcast that intro music you hear that's actually by this band called the sun city girls from this album of theirs called 333,003 cross dresses from beyond the rig veda which is kind of funny man these guys are total jokers but they're like were real travelers and are into discovering all the local sounds from around the world so they put some amazing shit out there like just going to countries and recording local radio stations um, and then bringing that stuff back to the West and allowing all of us to hear these amazing sounds that we otherwise wouldn't hear. So anyway, yeah, so there's that ancient Hindu scripture called the Rig Veda, which dates back to 1500 BC. But here's the thing, the origins of meditation can be traced back even further to around 2,500 or 3,000 BC, like all the way back to these people, 
this people called the Indus Valley dwellers, who themselves had a technology that was similar to those of the Nile, right? The pyramid builders. Now, this is where it gets interesting. So back around 2500 or 3000 BC, images of Shiva. Now, Shiva is one of the five echelons of Ishwara, the supreme being. So images of Shiva as, as Yogeshvara, who's the lord of yoga. The Hindu god system is quite complex, um, admittedly. It's great. Um, so these images were found as far back as 3000 BC. Now, this suggests that meditation was practiced as far back as 5000 years ago. Now, if that doesn't add some serious credibility to the practice and the benefits of the practice, man. I don't know what does. So I'm just going to read a tiny little bit here, straight from the introduction. Whatever its origins, in the early part of the first millennium BC, we find clearly stated both the methods and the discoveries of Brahma Vidya. Now, just quickly, Brahma Vidya is the supreme sciences because where all other sciences studied the external world, Brahma Vidya sought knowledge of an underlying reality which would inform all other studies and activities. So, with this introspective tool, the inspired Rishis, which literally translates to seers, so a Rishi is a seer, and that's part of my own meditation studies. I've been doing a, a Rishi course with Laura Poole at Mahasoma, right? So these Rishis of ancient India analyzed their awareness of human experience to see if there was anything in it that was absolute. So their findings can be summarized in three statements, which Aldous Huxley followed by Leibniz. Now, what I didn't say earlier about Iswar, and one of the reasons I like him so much is that he refers to and quotes all sorts of people from all walks of life. And uh, so he's not just always referring to ancient uh, Indian mystics or, or gurus. Um, he'll quote everyone from like St. Augustine to, I mean, right here he's talking about Aldous Huxley. So the findings of these uh, rishis, right, these ancient seers, can basically be summarized in three statements, which can be called like the perennial philosophy. Perennial means like, in this context at least, you could say everlasting. So the everlasting philosophy, because they appear in every age and civilization. So there's three statements. The first one is that there is an infinite and changeless reality beneath the world of change. Number two. This same reality lies at the core of every human personality. Number three, the purpose of life is to discover this reality experientially. That is to realize God while here on earth. Now, I know God can be a trigger for some, so you can just replace that with um, the ultimate bliss or the ultimate good or soul or daimon, if you like, which is like ancient Greek for, uh, you know, your inner soul. So, point three, again, it says the purpose of life is to discover this reality experientially. This reality he's talking about is the infinite and changeless reality that is at the core of every human personality. So, it's a reality beneath this world of change, which is the reality that we all function on, right? 
So like I was talking about at the start, when I'm standing outside uh, and it's dusk and, you know, I'm experiencing the normal sort of everything, everyday things that I do around that time, which is a beautiful color of the sky, you know, the sound of all the birds specifically at that time. But then across my field of vision flits this bat. And that's for me suggestive is that there is something else beyond this usual experience of the world of change, suggestive that it could be this infinite and changeless reality that lies at the core of all of us. Now, Eastbourne says the purpose of life is to discover this unchanging reality experientially. How do we do that? Well, I contend it's through meditation. So when we meditate and we transcend, we what we actually transcending is this world of change and entering into this infinite and changeless reality. So you could say that via meditation is to realize that divine nature while we're actually here on earth. And man, that indeed is a beautiful and powerful thing. Okay. 
Jimi Hendrix with 1983, a merman I should turn to be. I should say it wasn't recorded in 83 because, of course, Jimi died in like 69 or 70. I think it was recorded like around then, perhaps a couple of years earlier at um, Electric Ladyland Studios in New York. And even then, I didn't play the whole thing because I want to try and get through everything I wanted to today. But as you could hear, Jimmy is just all over it in that piece. Um, really stunning and it gets me like every single time I've heard it. And I've heard it for like so long now. It's just such an amazing thing. Getting back to the Bhagavad Gita and what the actual story is in the Bhagavad Gita. So basically, well, I'm just going to read you a little bit here. So here's the deal. Sri Krishna consoles and instructs Prince Arjuna as he is about to go into battle against family and friends to defend his older brother's claim to the ancient throne of the Kurus. Thus the great scripture called the Bhagavad Gita, that is, the Song of the Lord, begins. So, basically the deal is, like, Arjuna is about to go into war against his own family um because there's been a bit of a division there for a while and as he's about to go into battle like arjuna freaks out and goes i can't do this i can't do this i'd rather just lay down my sword and be killed than have to battle against my own family now sri krishna is his charioteer so the charioteer basically just steers or drives the chariot in this instance krishna vows not to take part in the battle himself it's arjuna who's taking part in the battle himself but as arjuna is having this crisis krishna then counsels him and i just want to read a little bit more a charioteer's position is a lowly one compared to the status and glory of the warrior he drives but krishna assumes this model role out of love for arjuna as a charioteer, here is in a perfect position to give advice and encouragement to Arjuna without violating his promise not to join the fight himself. Now that line there, as charioteer, he's in a perfect position to give advice and encouragement. That's essentially what I'm offering as a high-performance coach. So now I'm going to use a football example because that's my background, like I said last week. Um, if a footballer was to come to me, essentially that's what I would endeavor to do is to give them advice and encouragement while they go on the path to fight this war. Now, what the war that uh, they're talking about in the Bhagavad Gita is actually an allegory for the war that we all fight within the forces of light and dark within us. So I just want to go a little bit back. And there's just a beautiful passage here, which further explains uh, what the relationship between Sri Krishna and Arjuna is. So... Here, Iswaran says that Krishna is no ordinary charioteer, but an incarnation of God. So, what actually takes place is that Krishna then goes into 700 verses of sublime instruction on the nature of the soul and its relation to God, the levels of consciousness and reality, the makeup of the phenomenal world, and so on, culminating in a stupendous mystical experience in which he reveals himself to Arjuna as the transcendent lord of life and death. He counsels Arjuna to be compassionate to friend and enemy alike, to see himself in every person, 
and to suffer others' sorrows as his own. So as I said earlier, so this is basically like an allegory for the battle within. So if Iswaran here is saying that Krishna is counseling Arjuna to be compassionate to friend and enemy alike, I think part of the message there is that we should be compassionate to ourselves and our own suffering. So not to be judgmental of our own suffering, suffering, but to be able to be compassionate and understanding. And if we practice meditation twice a day for 20 minutes, reciting our mantra, we stand to be able to develop this, uh, what would you call it? This witness within where we're actually able to stand back when we're having these extreme feelings, like Arjuna is in this instance, to be able to stand back and witness ourselves having those feelings. So what this does is it allows us to experience those feelings without any judgment. I think that's one of the greatest gifts of meditation is that it actually allows us to um, be completely understanding and accepting of our humanity. So as Iswaran goes on to say here, he says, uh, you know, like we were just talking about, be compassionate to friend and enemy like to see himself uh, in every person and to suffer others' sorrows as his own. I think another thing I'd like to add there is as much as we should or endeavor to suffer others' sorrows as our own, we should endeavor to celebrate others' wins as our own. So if a friend or a loved one is like experiencing like a really dang good time, celebrate it as our own. Because remember what the message is in in one of the three um, messages of the perennial philosophy is that there is a core within us that is the same core that is within all. So in that way, we are all one. So when someone else is like experiencing a hard time, yeah, especially if they're a loved one, experience it as our own, offer them support. If they're experiencing a damn good time, experience it as our own, offer them our support. Try not to, you know, like I catch myself doing sometimes, see someone else having a really damn good time, a lot of success, then look at myself and think, fuck, I'm a failure, man, and start being all harsh and judgmental. No, that's a big problem. It actually just holds us back. And it's usually based on bullshit stories we tell ourselves. So instead of doing that, celebrate their win as our own. Now, to try and wrap this one up kind of quickly and keep it within that sweet spot, which I reckon is about half an hour, I just want to read this last little bit that Iswaran writes. He says that scholars can debate the point forever, but when the Gita is practiced, I think, it becomes clear that the struggle the Gita is concerned with is the struggle for self-mastery. Bam, self-mastery, one of the big four virtues here at Best Mind and also like a big four virtue of the the Stoic philosophers who I love so much, you know, Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus and Seneca would talk a lot about, you know, mastering yourself, being able to know the game you're playing and how to play it well and being able to know yourself so well that you understand and allow yourself to experience all that you do without any harsh judgments. Now, Iswaran goes on to say that it was Vyasa's genius, Veda Vyasa is actually the guy who 
arranged the original scripture, the four Vedas, right? So it was Vyasa's genius to take the whole great Mahabharata epic and see it as a metaphor for the perennial war between the forces of light and the forces of dark in every human heart. Now I contend, how do we come to experience or get to the point of self-mastery, which is like, you know, we never get to a point and we reach it and we celebrate, hey, I'm here, I don't have to do anything. No, it's actually a lifelong thing. There's like three things. As long as we're here on the temporal plane, we're going to experience pain. As long as we're experiencing this pain, we're going to have like uncertainty. Now, there's going to be this third factor as well, this eternal thing as well, well, not eternal. It's as long as we're here and alive on earth. We've got to develop ways to be able to deal with this pain and uncertainty. And one of the best things I think we can do is begin like a meditation practice twice a day for 20 minutes. Just on that point, I read this book a while ago. This is a different text I'm talking about now, but it's called Principles by this guy called Ray Dalio. Now, Ray Dalio today, to this very day, Forbes has him listed as being worth $20 billion. This guy's like successful successful beyond wildest imagination, right? So when I first read the book, I obviously forgot that Ray Dalio had said that he's a regular meditator. Now, what the kind of meditation that Dalio practices is transcendental meditation. So that's what Maharishi Mahesh Yogi brought across from India to America back in like, well, like early 60s, right? The same time that Iswaran came across, 1959 to be exact. So Ray Dalio practices this transcendental meditation, which is the same as Vedic meditation, which is the same as what I offer, which is virtue meditation. And Dalio has been doing this for about 40 years now, and he swears by it. In a recent interview, in fact, he said it's the greatest gift he could give to anybody is to encourage them to meditate twice a day. And the benefits that you will reap from this will basically lead you to being able to make better decisions, or at the very least, to be able to make quicker decisions. And like I was talking about in last week's uh, podcast, to be able to work that decision cycle more and to be able to improve on our decisions as we go. He says this is one of the great gifts of his meditation practice. And given that he said it's the greatest gift he could give to someone, the guy who's worth $20 billion, I think much like I said earlier that the practice being 5,000 years old lends it some credibility. Ray Dalio, this $20 million, million, $20 billion man, doing this regular practice like for 40 years still to this very day there's a whole bunch more credibility for this amazing practice of meditation all right thank you so much for tuning in um hopefully we kept this under half an hour hopefully you like the tunes i'll put a link to them up below so you can check them out in their entirety if you like and yeah thanks for tuning in i'll catch you next week